If you have your Bibles, I invite you to grab them and turn with me to the book of Romans this morning. Uh, We are continuing through our study together in this letter. This morning we have just two very short, very simple verses, at least simple to read. Uh, But as I'm sure, as I hope you will come to see, that these are very deep verses. And so this morning we are looking at Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. I will read those for us and then we will pray and ask God for help. Paul writes, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Pray with me. Father, as we as we open up your word, we come seeking help. We come seeking help to understand, help to know Help to believe and help to live. This morning we we pray and we ask for your help in all of these things. And God, I pray that you would give strength to my voice this morning as as your word goes forth. That your word would, would be what goes and what bears fruit in us. That it would not return to you void. Bless us during this time. Bless us during our worship. May your name be glorified. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, this weekend I was given and was had the opportunity to go to Columbia, South Carolina, and spend some time with uh, my friends from college and go take in a football game last night and had a really great time, which, as you can see, I, I survived the game, but as you can hear, my voice did not. Um, and so I'm a little bit hoarse this morning, but uh, thankful to be here with you, thankful to, to be back and, and have this time that we can come to God's word this morning and, and study Romans. Uh, we've been in Romans now for since last July, and, and we've seen uh, in this journey through this book, there's been a few turns in Paul's argument. Uh, we, we've turned from uh, Gentile sin and a slight turn into Jewish sin. And we've turned into uh, a, a broader focus on sin in chapter 3. And all along the way, we, we've sort of had these, these small and minor turns as Paul is walking us through this book. Well, last week, as we finished chapter 11, we are entering into chapter 12 and we are making a rather large turn in the book. Uh, and what I want us to do this morning is to walk through these these first two verses of this of this big turn and and sort of set the stage, both connecting it to what we've been studying, but also setting the stage for what we will be studying in the coming weeks and months together. And so I want to spend as much time here in God's word. I want I want to jump right into it with you. So if you will now, let's let's turn and, and look here at these two verses. You'll you'll notice very quickly that the first verse begins with a very common and popular word that Paul uses. And it's a word that you've heard me address multiple times. Every time we we see it in Scripture, there's a simple question that we have to ask. And of course, the word I'm talking about is therefore. 
And the question, as many of you are already familiar with, the question is, every time we see this word in Scripture, we have to ask, what's the therefore, therefore? And, and so we, we jump in and we, we see this and we, we come to it. And we need to know why it is that Paul is putting this therefore here before he gives us these commands. I went back and counted this week and and this morning is the 53rd sermon that we've done in Romans. And that is 52 Sundays that we have spent discussing and studying and, and worshiping from God's word in this letter. And all of it devoted so far to just The first 11 chapters. And we've learned a lot from these 11 chapters. I mean, haven't we? We've seen the the theology that the gospel being unfolded and unveiled before us. But things are about to change and about to shift as we move into chapters 12 and 13 and 14 and 15 and 16. Because you see that the first 11 chapters, Paul's focus has been explaining the gospel and and all that Christ has done for us. But he's given relatively little attention to what we must do. In fact, in the first 11 chapters of Romans, there are three explicit imperatives, three explicit times where Paul says that you must do this or you must not do that. Only three in 11 chapters. And to give you to to see this shift take place, when we look at chapter 12, for example, first 11 chapters, there's three commands. Chapter 12 has 35. And so we we have this this big shift in in what's happening where Paul is is moving on past theology into this is what you do now. Do this. Don't do this. Do this. Don't do this. But what we need to understand before we can really jump into these commands and these imperatives and these almost a rapid fire secession that Paul gives, we we have to know what the therefore is there for. Because the therefore connects the commands of chapter 12 and 13 and 14 and 15 to the first 11 chapters that Paul has been giving us. And there's something here, church, that that we come to understand about the gospel just from the way in which Paul organizes and structures this letter. This this truth about the gospel so often runs against the current of our mind and, and so often against what we might expect the Bible to say. And often those expectations are, are based partly because of this is how we've heard it preached. And this is how we, we are used to treating the Bible as a book of telling me what I need to do and what habits I need to change. And what things I, I have to continue doing or stop doing or whatever it is. But we need to understand this truth. And we need to understand that when it, when it comes to the gospel... Before we can know what we are called to do, we have to first know deeply and fully all that Christ has already done. We don't often think of the gospel like this very often. I mean, do we? I mean, if we're honest, if we were in the room where Paul is dictating this letter to his, uh, his scribe, you would almost, after 11 chapters, want to grab Paul by his collar and say, stop preaching to me and tell me what I have to do. Tell me how to fix my life. Tell me how to fix my marriage. Tell me how I can get rid of these bad habits. Tell me what I need to do to be a better Christian, Paul, a a better person, a better parent, a better spouse, a better employee. 
better friend. I mean, just give me a list. Tell me something to do, Paul. Because you haven't told me anything in 11 chapters. But it's precisely the opposite of the gospel, isn't it? Christian, the gospel isn't about our doing. It's not about your doing. It's not about my doing. It's about his doing. And before we can ever begin to understand what we must do as Christians and how we must live as the people of God and how how we must change and adapt and apply the teaching of Scripture, before we can do any of that, we have to understand all that he has done for us. Paul spent 11 chapters out of 16 just showing the church and explaining to the church all that God has done for us in Christ. Showing us our sin and our need for salvation. Showing us the the power of sin that reigns over us. The penalty for those sins and how Christ has defeated sin by taking that penalty on himself. And we can never begin to live the way that God calls us to live without first believing all that God has already done for us and on our behalf. Because what we must do has to be rooted in what he has done. And if we fail to know that, if we fail to to grasp that, then the the commands that Paul gives to us in the next few chapters, quite honestly, they're useless and they're a waste of time. And so if we stop here for a moment, and if I could speak to you and, and challenge you in this way, if you have not understood and really grabbed hold of the teaching of Romans 1 through 11, do not move into Romans 12. Go back. Read it again. Know it again. Study it again. And until those truths sink deeply into us, Romans 12 and 13 and 14, they they don't matter. Because we will twist the gospel and we will end up reading Romans backwards. Where we will get to Romans 8 after Romans 12 and, and we'll see, okay, all of the blessings that God has promised to us in Christ only come to me if I do something that God commands me. That's not the gospel, church. The blessings of Romans 8 and the blessings of of all that Christ has done to us come to us first by his grace and by his mercy. And then we are called to live and change accordingly. And so we ask, what is the therefore, therefore? Well, it is there to remind you of the first 11 chapters. It is to remind you of all that God has done for you. It is to to root your action, your living for God and and your obedience to his word. It is to root all of that in the work of Christ. That is the foundation of all that we do. That's why Paul writes it like he does. I mean, look at how he he phrases it. He says, "I, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, or as the NIV puts it, in view of God's mercy. Because we are only ready to hear the imperatives of the gospel after we have embraced the indicatives of the gospel. We don't do a whole list of things in order to receive the blessings of the Christ. We we, we embrace the gospel, we believe the gospel, and then we live accordingly. We live in view of God's mercy. We live by the mercies of God. We obey by the mercies of God that have already been shown to us. 
And forgetting this proper order of things will, will lead us to something that is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so having heard for 52 sermons all that God has done for us and all that Christ has accomplished, all that the gospel brings to you, keeping in view the mercies of God at all times, therefore, Christian, this is what you must do. You are called to present your bodies as a living sacrifice to God. At the time of Paul's writing, every religious practice in the world offered some sort of of sacrifice. Jews offered sacrifices to to Yahweh. They would bring animals, uh, gifts and crops into the temple for a variety of reasons. Seeking the forgiveness of sins or offering it up as a a sign of praise and thanksgiving. There were all all kinds of, of sacrifices that they offered Gentiles also would have offered sacrifices to their various gods and goddesses. They, they would have been a means of earning their favor and praying for divine blessing from these false deities. But, but regardless of, of who the sacrifice was offered to or, or why, the method was always the same. You bring something, some crop, some animal, some other gift, and you place it on the altar... And then you watch as it is burned up and the aroma of the sacrifice drifts up into the heavens where the gods and goddesses that whoever you're offering the sacrifice to would smell it and be inclined to bless you for it. And one of the ways that Christianity was was distinguished from all these other religions so early on was that Christians did not offer sacrifices. No altars, no fires, no, no sacrifices being burned up. And we know the, the reason for this is clear from Scripture, because no other sacrifice is needed than the sacrifice of Christ. We do not offer the blood of animals, nor, nor give gifts to earn the favor of God, because in Christ, in His sacrifice, we both have the forgiveness that we need, and we have His favor. All because of His sacrifice. But you can imagine the the sort of confusion that might have taken place in this first century world. As Christians began interacting in the public square with with other faiths and other religions. And and they would say, well, where is your temple, Christian? Where where do you go and, and make sacrifices? How do you serve your God? What is it that you give to your God? And Paul really pointed this out in Acts as he was walking through different cities and speaking to to Gentiles, to pagans, to non-believers. And he's saying God is not in need of us, in need of our gifts. He is not served by human hands. But in all of this, the Christian could easily respond in light of these verses. Well, my life is the sacrifice that I offer my God. I am the temple that that I then come into with the altar. And I I am the living sacrifice offered in service to God because of the sacrifice of Christ. And when we come to understand that this is what God is is calling us to, that he's calling us to be a living sacrifice, we also come to understand what God truly wants from his people. He doesn't want your stuff. He doesn't want your tithes. He doesn't want your offerings. He doesn't want anything that you can give to God because God doesn't need it. But what God wants, what God desires from you, is not your gifts, but he, he wants the giver. He wants you. 
And he wants all of you. Because that's the thing about sacrifices. There's no such thing as a partial sacrifice, is there? I mean, you can imagine an Israelite walking into the temple. Sacrifice in hand. He's got the, the animal that he has slaughtered and he's taking it in to be placed on the altar. And he goes to give it to the priest for the sacrifice. And he says, well, actually, I, I just want to do the, the, the front two legs today. I'm going to take the rest of it home with me and, and I'll bring it back another time. And the priest would look at him and go, I, I don't think you understand how this works. This is a sacrifice, which means the whole sacrifice goes on the altar. You don't get to pick and choose. You don't get to take any of it home. It, it, it goes here. And I wonder how many of us live under the same assumption that our lives can be and can serve God as partial sacrifices. I'll give him my Sundays, but Fridays, Saturdays, those are mine. I'll give him my mornings and I'll spend time in Bible study. But, but what I do with the screen in front of me, that's my, my business, not his. I'll serve him through my job, but not as a parent with my kids. I'll glorify God in my schoolwork, but not when my parents make rules that I don't like. Well, we could go on with a thousand other ways that we offer God what we're willing to let go of. But those areas of our life that we hold so closely to the vest, God can't have those. We hold back what we want to keep for ourselves. And Paul, Paul here says, no, no, you are to present your bodies, your whole and entire person. All that you have and all that you are is devoted and given to God as a sacrifice. You are the are the sacrifice and this response to the gospel of God is not something that you can do halfway or partially. And the reason this matters so much is because God never calls us as his people to do anything that he has not already done. The reason God calls on us to present our entire bodies as living sacrifices is because this is what he has done. He has given us all of himself in Christ in a sacrifice, in the sacrifice. And he says, you do likewise. Give me all of you. Every area of your life, every minute of every day, everything. Give it to me. How can our response be anything but this total sacrificial devotion to the one who has given in us his son? A total sacrifice at Calvary. It's also important that we, we see here these qualifications that Paul lays on the sacrifice. It's not just that we are a living sacrifice. God is not calling us to, to burn ourselves on his altar. We are to live as a sacrifice. But he also says the sacrifice must be holy and therefore acceptable to God. Because not only must your sacrifice, your life be a complete devotion to God, it must be a holy sacrifice. Israelites weren't allowed to bring in any animal and any crop that they wanted to sacrifice to God. They brought in the best. They brought in the spotless lamb. They brought in the healthiest cow. They brought in what was the best and gave it to God. And 
And God says, and Paul says, so likewise, your sacrifice to God must be holy. We don't offer sacrifices that are unworthy of God, but we, our lives are our call to be holy for that is who God is and what God has declared us to be in Christ. Holy, righteous, pure, blameless. What this means, Christian, is that we can no longer, we, we cannot continue living in sin, especially habitual and unrepentant sin. I'm not saying this. This isn't saying be perfect and be without sin. We still sin. And Paul's dealt with that in Romans seven and and previously. But the calling of the Christian faith and the calling on the Christian life is that when you sin, you confess your sins and you repent of them because he is gracious and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But when we, as these living sacrifices to God, continue living in a habitual sin that we do not repent of and that we do not confess and that we pass off as not a big deal. And as we sweep under the rug and try to hide it from our neighbors, as we pretend that these things are not that big of a deal, we are then offering to God an unholy sacrifice. And God does not accept unholy sacrifices. But you are called to live in holiness so that your sacrifice, your life can be acceptable and pleasing to God. And Paul ends this first verse by by defining and showing what this act of living for God and living to God and this sacrificial devotion, what it actually is. He says, for this, this is your spiritual worship. It's worship. And I know that we, we use this word in a lot of different ways. Sometimes we, we talk about worship when we're referring to music that we sing at church. And sometimes we, we use it to refer to this time that we gather together in Sunday mornings. But worship is, is very much, it is, is so much more than just an hour a week. It's so much more than just a really good song about Jesus. Worship, I think I've said this in, in small groups before, but, but worship is worth-ship. What, what we do in worship, what we worship, reveals what we deem to be worthy. And make no mistake, everyone worships. Every human being on the face of the planet, across all time and cultures and all of it, everyone worships. Because we were made to. We were made to see and find something that is worthy of our devotion and to then worship it. The issue is that in sin, we find a lot of other non-God things that we deem worthy of our worship. When we were made to realize and understand that he and he alone is worthy of it. And if you find yourself asking, well, what is it? What is it that I worship? And who is it that I that I worship that I deem to be worthy of my worship? What do you spend the most of your time thinking and talking about? What are the things that are running through your mind on a regular basis more than anything else? What is it that gets you the most excited? Which days of the week are the ones that you just can't wait to get out of bed and begin 
What is it that you deem worthy of your time and attention and affections and all of it? Because that's what it is that you're worshiping. And ultimately, what Paul is telling us here in in Romans 12 is that, that this worship of God, this living sacrifice that we are called to be, it means understanding who God is and all that God has done for us, and then understanding that, yes, He is worthy of it, and not only worthy of my worship, but worthy of my devotion entirely and completely. He is worthy of me pursuing holiness and not anything else. He is worthy of me pursuing and giving my life, all of my life, to Him and not to anything else. And that's why this is worship. Because this only takes place when you and I understand who God is and that He is worthy of it. But He also says that this worship, it's not just regular worship, He says it's spiritual worship. Which this word in, in Greek, it's, it's a logicon from which we get logical. Uh, but but it, it implies an, an inner worship. A worship that involves both the heart and the mind. It's more than going through the motions. It's more than offering lip service to God and saying the right things and nodding our hat, hat with our head when the pastor says the right word. Because once again, this involves the whole person, all of you given in worship to the God who is worthy. Make no mistake, this calling is a high one. It is difficult to live every moment of every day as a sacrifice to God. It's hard. But it is the only appropriate response to the gospel. Anything less won't do. And to stop short of this response is to reveal it reveals to us that we have not really grabbed hold of Romans one through eleven. We have not seen God for who he is. Because Christian, he is worthy of this. He has given all of himself to you and for you. He sustains you daily with his grace and his mercy. And knowing all of this, you and I must present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, because this is our spiritual worship. This is how we reveal to the world that he is who he says he is. And he has done what he says he has done, and he is worthy of it all. Now, I think this this argument, this first verse of chapter 12 could actually apply and sort of be a heading over the entire chapter and all the the commands that follow. Because what Paul's going to show us in the coming weeks and verses that is is how we are to live as these sacrifices, things that we must avoid and things that we must start doing and and how we are to relate to one another and and serve one another and, and all of it. And all of this sort of under this heading of living sacrifices. But before we move into all of these, I want to look at this first one with you in in verse two, because it begins with a change of of who we are and and how we are shaped and formed. Look at, at verse two with me, he says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Now, I, I grew up in. My teenage and college years where breakfast was not the most important meal of the day, mainly because I wasn't awake when breakfast was often served. 
But I married a woman who absolutely not only loves breakfast, but demands breakfast every single day. And I love her for it because breakfast is great. And and Saturdays, typically, because we, we don't have anything going on, we're not rushing off to school and work and different things. Saturdays are typically a big family breakfast morning. And it never fails. And you can ask her about this later, that every Saturday when we wake up and Paige, we're having coffee, Paige will come to me and says, well, what do you want to make for breakfast? And my answer is always the exact same thing. It never fails. Waffles. Because who doesn't love waffles? They're incredible. They're like pancakes, but better. And waffles, I think, are a a great picture of what happens when we are conformed. I mean, think about it. Pancake batter and waffle batter are the exact same thing. You pour pancake batter on a skillet and it forms a nice, neat pancake and cooks and it's golden brown and fluffy. You pour that same batter into a waffle iron and hold it and close it. And you don't get a pancake, but you get a waffle. The griddle is hot and it closes down over it. It conforms the batter and shapes it into the shape that this griddle has demanded. The, the batter will never change that griddle, but the griddle will always change that batter. And so what I think Paul is telling us here is for us to eat waffles, but not be waffles. Things that you never thought you would say for, when you were studying in seminary. But, but think about it. What, what Paul is, is telling us when he's saying do not be conformed, he is saying that we as Christians are in danger because the world has a mold, has a griddle that it is working to press around us as Christians and shape us into whatever image and whatever mold the world deems appropriate. I mean, have you ever wondered why and how so many Christians and so many churches in our country and around the world are are drifting away from the teachings of Scripture? Churches that have held to the inerrancy and the infallibility of Scripture for centuries, and they're, they're drifting away and moving away from it now. Have you ever wondered why? It's not because they're opposed to the things of God. And we can give them the benefit of the doubt. And we can say, these, these men and women, they, they want to love God and they want to serve God. But what they're doing is they're being shaped. And they're being conformed. And they're being molded by the world around them. They're being pressed into this mold. And when this happens, the church no longer looks any different from any other group and organization in the world. Because every other group and every organization has been pressed into this mold. And Paul says, don't do that. Don't allow yourself to be pressed into the world's mold. Don't allow the world to to shape you and to to pressure and to to form you as it wants. Because you do not belong there anymore. And this pressure from the world to shape us and change us and and form us, that's not going away anytime soon. And you and I need to understand that this mold is going to be constantly putting pressure on us from every side and often in ways that we don't even realize it's happening. And if we are not careful, we will be conformed. And Paul says, don't. But it's not all negative. He, He says, don't be conformed, but rather be transformed. And he gives us these two two play on words, almost, if you will, where where conforming takes place from the outside in. You shape the Play-Doh, as as Gary showed our children. 
You start from the outside and you apply external pressure and you shape it. But transformation happens from the inside out. It changes the very nature and the very substance of what it is transforming. And while we are called, the the command is do not be conformed. We are called to resist the world's conforming. That is our job. The transforming is not something we can do. The verb is passive. It's something done to us. He says, be transformed. Let the transformation happen to you. And God is the one who transforms. He is the one who changes who you are. But how does this transformation happen? Paul says, by the renewal of your mind. You see, church, transformation comes by the renewing of your mind, by by having your thoughts and your perspectives, your worldviews, your values, all given a newness of life in Christ. And this only happens one way through the word of God. The word of God transforms the people of God. That's it. I mean, consider Isaiah 55, which is a well-known chapter on the the power and the sufficiency of God's word. And God says through the prophet Isaiah, he says, for as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and they do not return there, but they water the earth. So my word that goes out from my mouth, it shall not return empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose. And it shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. And a few verses later, God says, instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress and instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle. What what Isaiah is pointing us to and painting this picture, he's saying that you can imagine a, a garden bed that is full of thorns and briars, weeds. And it would be absurd for us to expect that if the rain comes Later this week and waters this garden bed of thorns and briars that the day after the rain, those thorns and briars will have turned into beautiful fruit trees. It would never happen. But Isaiah is pointing us to the fact that this is exactly what God's word does. It waters out over deserts and over thorns and over briars in us and turns those into beautiful trees of life that produce fruit. God's word and and God's word alone is what transforms his people. And so let's let's just make this as simple as possible, church. You will never do what is right until you think what is right. And you will never think what is right unless you read what is right. I had a conversation this week about the the need for Christians to spend as, as much time in the scriptures as possible. And to to be able to do that, to be able to read God's word on their own. And we compare it to to cooking a meal and being fed from God's word. And sadly, I I think there are many who consider the, the sermon on Sunday mornings this time to be all the Bible study that they need for the week. They think this is enough to get me by until next until next Sunday. But what if we actually treated the Bible or treated food the way we treat the Bible? What if our time on Sunday mornings was an actual meal and we filled the stage with all this food and we said, come and and take your fill, eat as much as you want, have it, here it is. And then you went home and you had a full belly, but you didn't even sniff a crumb for the rest of the week. 
And he said, no, this will hold me over for another seven days. I'll be fine. And what if we continue to do that as a church week after week after week where the only food that we ate for seven days was during the hour that we were together here? We would be the most malnourished community in North Carolina. And yet, are we any better off when it comes to spiritual nourishment and spiritual meals? Are you being fed every day from the word of God? Or are you waiting days and weeks in between meals? Because the reality is, is if you are sitting here this morning and you're saying, I want God to transform me. I want to be transformed. Then are you reading his word? Are you studying the scriptures? Because it does not come in any other way. As we, we finish up this verse, you can see the effects of this transformation. He says that by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And let me just point out a, a couple of quick things here. First, this transformation that God offers is, or that God does is not an overnight change. It takes time. It doesn't happen after a really good morning where you really sat down and you read chapters and chapters of God's word. And then you got up from your desk or your couch and you got up a transformed and changed person. It doesn't happen that way. It takes time to see the effects of this transformation. That's what Paul means by the word testing. It's a word that has the the connotation of experience. And so what he's saying is, is he's saying that over the course of time, you will gain enough testing, you will get enough experience under your belt that you'll be able to see the results of this transformation. It takes time to be transformed. But don't let that discourage you. It's, it's like the, the old adage, when was the, when's the best time to plant a tree? 20 years ago. But when's the second best time to plant a tree? Today. And so if you're here this morning, Christian, and you're discouraged over the lack of transformation that you've seen in your life and the lack of change that you've seen, the the, the failure to read God's word, whatever it is, do not let that be discouraging to you. Yes, it will take time. But the best time to start it might have been 20 years ago. But the second best time to start it is today. And what Paul tells us, the, the marks, the, the, the marks of this transformation, the, the results in the long run, he says, you will be able to discern the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. You see, as the God, as the word of God transforms you, as it renews your mind, you will grow into the grace of God, which will allow you to look out into this world and see all that is good and all that is acceptable, all that is perfect that God has made. And make no mistake here, the world has its own standard of good and acceptable and perfect. But it is a broken measuring stick. It is a standard of blind leading the blind. And that's the reason that conforming to the world is such a dangerous practice. Because we will begin, unknowingly, we will begin to approve what the world approves. And we will call what the world calls good, we will say, yeah, that's good. Where scripture might very clearly say, no, it's not. In fact, Scripture condemns this behavior. In Isaiah 5, God says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness. 
Or we could go back to Romans 1 where Paul highlights this as the sign of sin. He says, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And if we aren't careful, the world will conform our views to be like them in this, like we once were. But the transformation of God that comes through his word enables us to look out at this world and discern, tell the difference between what is evil and what is truly good. Between what is unholy and what is truly acceptable to God. What is truly perfect and righteous. This transformation is a return to what you and I were created to be. To bear God's image in his good creation and to look out over all that he has made and then repeat his words from Genesis 1. He looked out over all that he had made and behold, it was very good. That's what this is a return to. This transformation is returning us to a point where we are renewed by God's word and able to be with God and look out at what he has made and say, yes, not only is this good, but you are good. You are perfect. And without this transformation, we will miss it. Christian, having having read the first 11 chapters of this book, of this great gospel centered letter, knowing all that God has done for you in Christ, keeping in view the mercies of God, which he has lavished on you. You are called to present your bodies As living sacrifices to God. Holy and acceptable. And one of the ways that we do that is by resisting the conforming of the world. The pressing in of the world's mold. And instead being transformed by the renewing of our minds through his word. So study it. Let it wash over you. Let it. Let it. Be like the rains on dry ground and watch as he transforms you, allowing you to see all that is good and all that is acceptable and all that is perfect in Christ. And this transformation, this call to be a living sacrifice, this is a calling that will hang over you and be stamped on your life for the rest of your days on this earth. And it takes time. So what are you waiting for? Get started on this today. Pursue this transformation. Seek it. In the word of God. Pray with me. Father, that is that is our prayer. We pray for transformation. We pray for newness. And we pray that your word would bring it to us by your spirit. Help us, Father. Help us to seek you and to seek your word. Give us a hunger for this book. That by reading it, by knowing it, you may transform us. By your grace and in view of your mercies. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.